CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Jan Domerholt in Rockville, Maryland, USA. Jan, thank you for joining me today. The last time we spoke was when we were in the, uh, you were in the US and I was back home in Australia. On this occasion, we're both in the same place and uh, your hometown uh, in, in uh, the US. And um, it's great that you can join me and talk to me about your most recent book, we're not going to actually read out your entire resume for for um, purposes of brevity. Uh, last time I uh, talked about your whole resume, it took quite a long time, 16 pages of it. And anyone who's interested in Jan's achievements uh, can uh, look back at that um, podcast and uh, have a look at uh, the CV there. Um, so we're here to talk about your fourth contribution, your fourth book, Manual Therapy, for musculoskeletal pain syndromes. And we should, uh, of course, mention the last three books, the ones before this, which, of course, the Trigger Point Dry Needling book, an evidenced and clinically based approach, Myofascial Trigger Points, Pathophysiology and Evidence-Informed Diagnosis and Management, and the last one, Myofascial Pain and Trigger Points. Let's start with the title of the new book, um, because your uh, new book, like the Trigger Point Dry Needling book with Cesar Fernandez de las Peñas, emphasizes a phrase that I think is very significant, evidence and clinically informed approach. So informed would be the key word there. Tell me about this phrase. Yeah, it's an interesting question. When um, years ago, when Sackett started writing about evidence-based medicine, um, he really mentioned five levels of evidence, and the best level of evidence is the randomized controlled study, but the lowest level of evidence, but still evidence nevertheless, is the clinical experience of the individual. Um, over the years, that kind of faded away, especially in the scientific journals. Uh, it is very difficult in some journals to get case reports even published now because people don't really consider that evidence anymore because it's not a double-blind controlled study. So several years ago, there was a bit of a movement to going back to the original thoughts of Sackett, who just passed away, as a matter of fact, um, um, and to to look at evidence based with the randomized controlled study, what are we doing with all the other information that we have in the clinic? Our experience, our pattern recognition, the clinical reasoning patterns that we see in our patients, Um, So the term evidence-informed kind of took that place, what originally was considered to be the evidence-based. So in this book, we not only look at the scientific evidence, um, but also look at clinical experience and clinical evidence that uh, the many authors contribute to this book. Uh, We've collected quite a few authors in this book with various backgrounds, and uh, each of them has research, uh, most of the research, and clinical experience. So both of them are important, I think, in we, in when we look at our patients, and that's really what this book tries to address. Okay, thank you. Uh, I guess, uh, I mean, this book is highly referenced, which is great. Everything that's uh, in the book by the various contributors has the references to it. But um, do you think that as manual therapists, we rely <coughs> too heavily these days on evidence-based 
and uh, research uh, rather than perhaps valuing clinical experience as much these days? Well, it's really a combination of the two things, I think, that um, if we would just look at evidence-based, I don't think there's enough evidence for us to actually work as clinicians. There are too many issues that have not been studied in detail. Uh, a lot of the, if, if going down to all the way to basic anatomy, there's a lot of anatomy findings we just finding out about that really you would think would have been studied a long time ago, but have not happened. Um, all the way to clinical paradigms, like what tests do we do? Have they all been validated? Are there, there are many of the tests I learned in physical therapy school just a few years ago now, <laughs> um, really are not what they proven to be. And so if we just look at evidence-based, there's just not enough evidence to justify solely on the evidence what we are doing. So that, again, goes back to the argument of evidence in Ford. But if you just look at is it scientifically proven or not, we just don't have enough of a knowledge base to use that paradigm to do the best we can clinically to help our patients. So I do think it's very important to combine the best of what we can find in the literature as far as research, but really don't negate what we have to contribute as clinicians, because some of it is just common sense. Um, I, I'm scheduled to do a presentation in a few weeks at the, at the national conference here in the U.S., and I use the famous example of parachute jumping. Um, you know, there is no scientific double-blind controlled randomized study that proves that parachutes are useful. <laughs> but common sense dictates that if you want to jump out of a plane, unless you're suicidal, if you want to jump out of a plane, the chances of surviving is significantly greater when you're a shoot, although... Not everyone dies from jumping out of a plane without a shoot, but that's just common sense. Yes. So in the clinical practice, I think we can't forget common sense and, and, and analytic thinking, looking at the situation and, and saying like, hey, well, this is what I see here. I may not always be able to explain anything scientifically, but I do know that the presenting complaint of my patients, they just told me that. I tried to listen to what they say, look at how they move, for example. Uh, combine it with the insights of what they we know about pain sciences and maybe central sensitization, and do the best you can with the knowledge we have and the clinical observations we make. I think that's really where we are right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that uh, our innate understanding of the human body, uh, what we feel with our hands, what we hear with our ears, and uh, what we see with our eyes is just as important sometimes in the absence, in the absence of clear evidence to the contrary. I think uh, we should uh, rely on our um, evidence-informed information to help patients because really at the sharp end when we're in a room with a patient who wants to get out of pain, there's not a whole lot of evidence for many of the things that we do. But right. we do have clinical experience. I and, agree with that, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, move on to the book uh, now uh, and talk about uh, the other contributors. Uh, manual therapy for musculoskeletal pain syndromes is very much an international affair. Three editors, yourself of course, uh, and then there's Dr. Cesar Fernandez de las Peñas, uh, an osteopath and researcher from Spain. And finally, Dr. Joshua Cleland, a professor of physical therapy from the U.S. What have you all brought together to the book? 
Well, our paths have crossed in the past, and and uh, Josh Cleland actually just reminded me of this that. Approximately 10 years ago, I attended a workshop he conducted at the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. And it was a manual phys- manual therapy workshop. And he cited in one of his research papers, he cited a study by Cesar Fernandez de la Peñas, who I knew for years already before that, because Cesar and I have done several projects in the past. So after his workshop, I actually walked up to Josh and said, have you ever met Cesar Fernandez de la Peñas? Because to me, they have a lot of similarities. They're in the same age group. They're very productive, very prolific. They publish more papers. They write, they publish their papers faster than I can read them <laughs> uh, because they're both very involved in, in trying to figure out the best possible what, what, we, what our fields are all about and how to do the research. At that point, Dr. Cleland was just about to go to Spain. A month later, I think he left for Spain to meet with Cesar Fernandez de la Peña to see if they could collaborate on different research studies. So it was kind of like meant to be, I think, that the three of us at some point would work closer together. And this book kind of grew out of that relationship that we have similar goals and objectives. It comes from very different angles. But I think that's an asset to a book like this because it is such a large book with 800-some pages. Um, and, for example, the selection of the authors, we really went over. We first made it and kind of like an, an outline of the book. What do we think is important? How should we structure this book? And then we really like, well, who do you know in the world, not just in our little area, but in the world, who has done significant work about it, who is a good writer, who's done the research, who has clinical experience, and really we're looking for people worldwide who could contribute to this book. And I think we were able to tap into the worldwide resources and, and really the collection of authors is really who's who in manual medicine and manual therapy. Excellent. I, I think that that's just answered my next question, which was how did you get these uh, well over 80 different contributors? And I think that, uh, you know, when they say it's not what you know, it's who you know, but I think in this case it's what you know and who you know that has uh, brought these people together, which is great. The book is uh, rich in information about uh, everything to do with uh, musculoskeletal pain syndromes and manual therapy. So going um, uh, on with the with the book, uh, I know that uh, pain is a is a major interest of yours, and it plays a large part of your dry needling courses at my pain seminars here. Indeed, I would say that pain is uh, an overwhelming symptom that most of our patients present with. How, how has your knowledge of the pain sciences and other contributors influenced this book? Well, when I was trained in manual therapy. Um, pain was not mentioned. Uh, We were taught that uh, manual therapists address dysfunction. In one of the courses, I vividly recall that the instructor said that physiotherapists have no business treating pain because people come to us with dysfunctions, usually considered joint dysfunctions, with a very biomechanical approach. Um, The biomechanics, the joint doesn't move properly, that's why people have pain, that's why they're dysfunctional, but then they complain about pain. Rather than treating the pain, rather than focus on pain, we need to treat on the dysfunction, do some joint manipulations, mobilizations, again, from a very biomechanical perspective. And for many years, that paradigm 
was the basis of manual therapy, manual medicine. As people started looking more at pain sciences, we realized that, well, that is actually really not quite correct. Um, yes, there are things you can do with manual therapy approaches, whether that's with trigger points, what I like to do, or with joint mobilization manipulations. There's still some validity to that, but only if you do it in, con- in conjunction, in concert with what we know from the pain science world. So, um, as one of the, the uh, forewords in the book from uh, Rob Oostendorp from the Netherlands so points out so nicely is that just looking at people from a biomechanical perspective is really not good enough anymore. So once we know that most chronic pain patients have significant central sensitization, they need to be educated about that. They need a top-down approach of really about looking um, and mostly in Butler's book, Explain Pain, I think that comes into play here. We need to look at, okay, what does it mean to have pain? What is the meaning for you to have this pain issue? Um, some people believe that that's all you have to do. What we try to show in this book or with this book, that, well, that is very important, but at the same time, you can have a bottom-up approach combined with a top-down approach, and if you do the manual therapy and exercise therapy in conjunction with the therapeutic, almost like neuroscience education, I think you got the best of both worlds. Recognizing the limitations of both worlds, but also recognizing the enormous advantages of combining the two. And, and in the end, your patient will only benefit from that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that the two, as with many things, there's never going to be a black and white answer to a solution. Always the best solutions, I believe, whether we're talking about medicine or outside medicine, is a compromise. So we're looking at something together. The top down and uh, the bottom up approach is going to help you more than one or the other alone in okay. singularity. And that notion is evident throughout the book. But some chapters emphasize it more than others mm. uh, because in some forms of manual therapy, the pain sciences really have not been considered as much as in others. Um, mm-hmm. But we have a few chapters in the book, uh, a chapter by Adrian Law, for example, that really describes how these two worlds interact with each other. And that's one of the introductory chapters of the, of the book. And I think that is the key to really look at recognizing the limitations of manual therapy. And there are many limitations. I mean, people say the issues are not in the tissues. And there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, we can't negate that peripheral work, peripheral nociceptive input, plays a significant role. And if we can diminish that through manual therapy techniques and through properly prescribed exercise approaches... Combined with again the top down, like really pain and pain science education, I think again that's that's where we are right now. Yeah, I agree. Now um, we touched on this before um, about orthopedic <coughs> testing in um, undergraduate training, but it interested me uh, this section uh, about the sacroiliac uh, joint dysfunction by mm-hmm. Dr. Kenneth Learman. And I was interested in his final remarks about orthopedic testing, where he says that most of the tests he quoted in the book, in his uh, section, as useful in provoking pain over the region, had little diagnostic accuracy. That is to say, the tests have low levels of specificity 
and sensitivity, or sensitivity. He goes on to say that using a combination of these tests may give you more diagnostic accuracy. So using a combination of orthopedic tests for which test for a particular thing will generally or may give you a better diagnostic accuracy than using one in isolation. So you might get a 3 out of 5 or a 4 out of 5, the possible test being positive is better than saying relying on one test. What do you think about the role of orthopedic testing uh, when used as standalone or combined? Is that a, a trend that's that's happening now in the in the uh, manual medicine world to use combined tests to give you better diagnostic accuracy? Yeah, that's a great question. The I think there's a lot of evidence from not just the sacroiliac area, but also for the shoulder region and others that many of the tests we took for granted that we learned in PT school or other schools uh, really don't stand up. And when they're being tested on large groups of patients, they're not valid or reliable for that matter, but again, poor sensitivity and, and uh, specificity. Um, in the sacroiliac area, I was told Fry's Royette's uh, laws, and uh, I was taught to palpate the motion of the sacroiliac joint. Um, later tests have shown, and, and uh, Peter Sullivan from Australia has done a lot of work on that, that it's really not possible to perceive motion at the sacroiliac joint. And yet we all palpated motion over diagonal axis and all that, and we made ourselves believe, or we were made to believe, that that was an accurate assessment. Now we know that these tests really don't hold up. I work closely with Andre Fleming. Actually, we, we teach a functional anatomy course together where we spend a lot of time on actually analyzing what is known at the sacroiliac joint. The joint moves two to three millimeter intra-articularly, and that's about it. Peter Sullivan has contributed it by stating if you want to really look at this dysfunction in that joint area, which of course is possible, it is much better to, for instance, look at the motion and pain propagation at the pubic bones as a much longer lever arm. It's the same bone, they are connected. That gives you much better specificity if you want to do an isolated test. Back to your question, many of the isolated tests we've learned really don't stand up. Uh, in the shoulder, we've uh, recently have seen different works, and we mentioned some of that in the book as well, about the value of tests for impingement syndrome, for example. Well, the tests are so poor, um, the empty can test has no has very poor validity, and several of the others, that indeed in that region also the idea of cluster testing, of combining different single tests into one package, may give you better results, may be better reliability and validity, uh, but many of the cluster testing packages have not been really researched as such as e either. So it may give us better ideas, but the truth is most of the orthopedic tests are not that useful in clinical practice. No, I, I agree. I think uh, that's where, again, rather than relying on one type of uh, testing, you've got to use not just a cluster test for a particular area, but testing overall. You're relying on your history taking, your um, uh, your um, examination, the orthopedic testing, functional movement, passive, active, and so on, give you a whole picture. And it's never absolutely clear that somebody only has a supraspinatus tendinopathy. They don't always, they don't, they never have one thing wrong. There's a combination of things. Um, but I do, I do remember when I was um, examining once in at Victoria University final year 
osteopathic students, uh, a couple of uh, uh, students, uh, when asked, uh, there was a situation where they were presented with a patient, a real patient. They presented with some conditions, uh, some symptoms and signs and orthopedic testing. And when asked, uh, those students asked, what do you think the problem is? They came up with uh, a novel way to look at this, and I was quite taken aback and thought, oh, I'd never heard of this before, but I've seen it in, it, it, sort of when we're talking about this uh, combination of testing. They said, well, the probability that this patient has a, um, a, a disc problem is 78%, and the probability that this patient has a neurological problem is this much, and the probability, and so on. And, and so they gave percentages to the likelihood of someone having something, do, do you, uh, having a condition or not. Now, how they came up with this is irrelevant at this point. Do you think that we're going to get to a point where we can put signs, symptoms, um, examination results <coughs> into a computer which has an algorithm built into it and come out with a probability of having a condition or not in the future? If you like the Star Trek movies, you'll see that <laughs> already existed in other people's thoughts. Um, a little scanning device that tells you what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. I think we are very, very far removed from that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I believe that the human, human beings as we are, we are so incredibly complex and the medical sciences and associated fields have only touched the tip of the iceberg of the complexity that we really are. So I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I also think that thinking that we have that much knowledge that we can mm. use that kind of mm. detailed specificity with percentages is really a sign that we don't really understand how complex we are. Mm. So it's, it, it, to me, it almost reflects a level of ignorance if you mm. think that you can capture that with a percentage. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's kind of like when insurance companies do. When you have a homeowner's insurance in the United States and you file a claim, which is always a bad idea because it will always be used against you. I found out the hard way. <laughs> and within a certain period of time, you something happens. In my house, someone fell down my steps. Mm. I didn't push down the person. I did not have a track record of pushing down people down my steps <laughs> to serious injuries. But the insurance company came up with a letter that now we had a 19% probability that someone else would fall down my steps. Wow, that's pretty accurate. And, and I was like, how in the world did you calculate that? Because what is your algorithm? Mm. And, of course, they couldn't answer that, but they canceled my insurance. Hmm. And it, in healthcare, that's a little bit the same thing. If we think that we can be that accurate in predicting what people mm. have even the technical prediction patterns. You know, uh, Chad Cook, a well-known physiotherapist in the States, he's done a lot of work in clinical prediction patterns, did a very interesting study a few years ago at the iPhone conference. Hmm. That really comes to mind when you say that. Um, they did the clinical prediction test and they had certain parameters, certain assumptions they made up front. They did the whole testing for clinical prediction and they came out with a certain outcome. If these combinations of factors are present, the chances of you getting better with this particular treatment is this is this percentage. Then they went back to the initial data and they changed one or two parameters of the initial assumptions mm -hmm. and they got an entirely different mm -hmm. outcome. Okay. So what they tried to point out to that is that even clinical prediction testing, people, some people really spend a lot of time and energy into that, but 
it is still based on your initial assumptions and therefore it can be totally, totally wrong. Mm. So no, I don't think that we're anywhere close to having a computer algorithm mm. that's accurate enough to predict what we do. Okay. That's pretty um, convincing, uh, and uh, I think that our, our jobs are safe, is what you're saying. We're, we're, no one's going to replace us anytime soon. Now, um, home exercises. Many of the chapters in the book talk about home exercises. While this is very important in terms of patient recovery, admitted, and rehabilitation, it's also an area of low compliance. We all know we uh, patients, in my opinion, only do the exercises at early stage when they might be in pain still, so they're reminded, oh, yeah, that's right, I've got to do my exercises, get my TheraBand out or whatever it is they've got to do. But how do you think we can improve the level of interest and, of course, the compliance for patients' rehab and exercises? <laughs> Well, we didn't really address that in the book, um, mm. and we can't because that's really a topic almost for maybe the next book we need to put together. Mm. And that's an interesting thought actually doing that. Um, exercise, follow through with exercise is extremely poor. I mean, there are studies that show that in back pain, 70% of the patients are not going to do a single exercise you give them. Um, if you, even in cardiac rehab, I, I sometimes cite a paper that looked at people who had cardiac surgery, 78% of these patients were recommended to start a cardiac rehab. 43% dropped out prematurely, so that's half almost, and 20-some percent never even showed up. Um, so the compliance was extremely poor, even after a life-threatening illness and requiring surgery. One of the problems with exercise compliance and giving people home exercises is that my opinion, most exercises are so incredibly boring and so non-functional. Um, we can look at exercise prescription cards and books and computer programs, and many of these things have no validity, no relationship to the patient's actually problem. A study that was just published, about to get published in physiotherapy in the UK, showed that physical therapists actually have difficulty combining what we perceive to be useful exercises with making them fun and enjoyable. So if there's already an inherent conflict that we don't even know how to make exercising fun and enjoyable, I think the patients immediately pick up on that and they're not going to do it. Um, so the value of exercise, I think, needs to be mm -hmm. studied. Yes. The fact is the majority of people do not exercise. The majority of people do not go to a gym, mm. do not walk, do not go climbing or hiking or bicycling or other than very occasionally. So to put something, to tell people to do something that they have really no inherent interest in doing is almost impossible to do. Yeah. We have to make it fun. I think it needs to be very fun. Mm. I also strongly believe that exercise needs to have an external focus of attention mm. and not an internal focus. We, we, in our, one of our clinics, we do a lot of work along those lines, and, and when we look at the research supporting that, uh, one name that comes to mind is the work by Gabriella Wolf, a, re a German researcher currently residing in Nevada, the state of Nevada. And she's published a lot of work on using an external focus. 
Uh, for example, if you on a, uh, a ski training device where you just slide sideways left to right, Fitter is one of the brands that comes to mind. If you tell the patient, can you push your foot to the right and then push your foot to the left, or you tell the patient, can you move that plate to the right or to the left, or you don't give them any instructions, the patients who were told to move their foot perform the worst. Mm. They perform worse than the control group. The patients who are told to move an external object perform much, much, much better. Yeah. And if you add the suprapostural task on top of that, so you have them do this and then give them a, a box, for example, with a ping pong ball in it that they need to keep level, if you tell them to keep their hands still, they will not do as well if you keep tell them to keep the box still. So external focus is a much better way of exercising, also much more interesting. So when we give people exercises, let's say for um, knee problems or patellofemoral tracking issues or ankle instability or whatever it is, it probably makes a lot more sense to put the person on a somewhat unstable surface yeah. and have them do something with their upper body, knocking out lights that may blink at certain paradigms, certain intervals, or give them even a cognitive task while they're doing something with their body. And in the meantime, they're training through basically proprioceptor trainings without focusing on the ankle and knee. That shows that works much, much, much better. Again, we did not address that component in the book at all. Uh, most authors mentioned that it's so important. Um, I think that is questionable if we don't make it fun. Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. Now, finally, on a sad note, uh, the book is in uh, the memory of Peter Heibrechts, who sadly passed away on November 6, 2010. Uh, his contribution to the book is one of great importance, in my opinion, and uh, is where it all starts uh, when we're looking at patients in our treatment rooms, and that's the history-taking. That's a really important part of the whole consultation, in my opinion. Tell me about uh, Peter's uh, contribution and history-taking. Yeah, actually, the idea for this book came from Peter Heibrechts, you pronounce it almost properly. Almost, almost. It's almost, yeah. Thank it's you. a difficult Dutch name. He mm. was a Dutch physiotherapist, as I am. And Peter came up with the concept for this book. He was the former editor of the Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy. And in that sense, he was extremely well-read and a really funny man. When Peter walked in the room, no one would forget him. Mm. Um he had definitely his own idiosyncrasies, like we all do. But, for example, I have never seen him not wearing shorts. <laughs> Summer and winter, he would wear shorts. He wore shorts to the clinic. He worked out in shorts. He presented in shorts at conferences. Right. He said, I do not wear slacks. So that is not what I do. I like to wear shorts. So he definitely had a mind of his own. <laughs> yeah. But he was also a very strong clinician, researcher, editor, contributor, and, and just a very fun man. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away taking a nap in the afternoon, and he never woke up um, mm. at the age of 44, I think he was. Wow. So very young. Mm. So the idea for this book really was Peter's idea. Um, he had met with Cesar already to do this. And initially, I was really not part of this book. So the initial concept for this book was to have a two-volume series, one called uh, Neck and Arm Syndromes, Arm Pain Syndromes, and another one called low back and leg pain syndromes. Well, the, the book 
neck and arm pain syndrome has been published. And uh, the publisher, Elsevier, was not convinced that another book like that, focusing just on the low back and leg pain syndrome, would actually be appealing to clinicians. And so they asked us to kind of combine the two concepts into one book, and that's the book you see now. So my role in the book, actually, I came on much later. Uh, the concept of the book was already established, and uh, I kind of replaced Peter Heiberg's in the sense that a book with 80 authors and some 100 chapters mm. is a monumental task for one person to do. So we really mm -hmm. try to divide the work between the three of us. Yes and really look at also at our each our individual expertise. And so we kind of divided the chapters up, like who will look at what. Um, so when the authors contributed the chapters, we really looked at specific chapters that each one of them would review to make sure that it was what we wanted, um, gave feedback to the authors. And when we had questions, we consulted with the other two editors and really tried to do it as a joint project. And that's why the whole book from concept to approval to actually being out on the bookshelf took less than two years. Wow. That's incredible. That's uh, very quick, isn't it, for yeah. an 800-plus page right. book? But we must also say the contributing authors were really fast. Mm. We did harass them a little bit every now and then to make mm. sure, are you working on your chapter? It's doing two in three weeks. And yes, crack the whip. But people, we cracked the whip, and people really followed through with it, and Mm. Uh, did not slack on the quality of the, of the book. I mean, uh, each author in each chapter, I think, really has put forth what we currently know about the particular topic of that chapter. Yes, yes. Uh, an excellent uh, book, uh, a wonderful contribution. Uh, Jan, I want to say thank you very much for your time today, and uh, I want you to keep working hard as you do. I know you're a prolific reader, researcher, writer, and educator, and uh, we're all the better off for having you in our uh, world of uh, manual medicine. So thank you again. For those of you who uh, want to purchase the book, it's Manual Therapy for Musculoskeletal Pain Syndromes uh, by uh, Elsevier, published by them. So you'd probably want to go to elsevier.com um, and uh, find the book there. And, of course, it's available on other sites like Amazon. Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. It was a pleasure. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.